Every picture tells a story. And one will come on the screen in a moment. If you were around in 1990, you might remember this picture, May 1990, that then Agriculture Minister John Gummer appeared before the media to eat a hamburger with his daughter Cordelia in an attempt to calm rising fears over the safety of British beef. There is no need for people to worry, he confidently asserted. But people were worried and with good reason. Four months later, in September of that year, the laboratory transmission of BSE, for those who don't know, stands for bovine spongiform encephalopathy. The transmission of BSE to a pig is announced by researchers. Five years later, 19-year-old Stephen Churchill is the first known victim of variant CJD, Jakob Kreutzfeldt Jakob's disease, said to be linked with BSE. And finally, in 1996, one year later, after his death, and six years after Mr. Gummer's assertion, ministers announced that they may have got it wrong after all. Beef on the bone is banned, rigorous changes in what animals are fed or enforced, and government inquiries set up. There are now over 80 known victims of variant CJD in Britain thus far, and projections about the future deaths continue to vary. 2,000 years ago, in the Greek city of Corinth, there was also a concern about eating meat. Not among the population in general, but among a small but growing group of people who followed one Jesus Christ. The issue that they had about eating meat was nothing to do with disease or mad cows or the quality of the meat. No, for some of them it was much more serious than that. In a word, their problem with meat was idolatry. Corinth was a Greek city, and as such was full of temples to the various gods of the Greek pantheon. One travel guide, written at this time by a man named Pausanias, listed more than a dozen temples and shrines in the city square alone. The great temple of Apollo overshadowed the whole of the city. Now you may ask, what has this got to do with meat? In short, everything. For the temples in those days were not just places of worship, but also served as a kind of restaurant come social club. Let's take an example, drawn from the actual records from the papyri at this time. Scholars spend their time deciphering things like this. And here's an invitation. I will translate. Kairimon requests your company at the table of the Lord Serapis at the Serapium tomorrow, the 15th at 9 o'clock. A man named Kairimon is celebrating the first birthday of his daughter. So he plans to give thanks for this event at the Serapium, which is a temple devoted to the god Serapis. And he invites all his friends to join him on this special occasion. He takes along with him an animal. He gives the animal to the priest of Serapis, and the priest sacrifices it on the altar to the god. Some of the meat is burnt on the altar. Some of it the priest takes as a kind of commission for himself. And the rest is given back to Carimon and his friends, cooked and then served on the premises. 
in celebration. Records show that temples in these days had specially set aside dining areas where this kind of thing happened. Now, supposing you lived in Corinth and you'd become a follower of Jesus. Should you accept the invitation to the temple knowing that the meat you'd been offered had almost certainly been sacrificed to an idol? And this was not just a problem restricted to special occasions like birthdays and weddings. Almost all social interaction took place in such a setting. The affairs of the day were discussed there. Deals were struck. Trade union meetings took place there. Friendships were forged and maintained in one of the many temples in Corinth. And if that were not bad enough, even if you said, I'm a follower of Jesus, no more temples for me, you still weren't avoiding all the problems. Because supposing you went down to the butchers to get some meat, chances are that the meat that you bought had already been sacrificed to the gods. For you imagine being a priest in these temples, you would never manage to eat all of the meat that you were given, and so the priest sold it on to the butchers. So what should a follower of Jesus do? Were vegetarianism and social withdrawal the only viable options? The members of the church in Corinth were divided on this issue. Some of them said, it's no problem, I can do it with a clear conscience. Others, however, were deeply troubled by the prospect of eating meat that had been offered to idols. Who was right? And so what they did, they wrote to the man who founded their church through his preaching about three or four years before. This man named Paul, a messenger sent from God who told them about Jesus. And they wrote this letter to him asking him about all sorts of things. In our last two studies, we saw that they wrote and asked him his opinion about sex and marriage. But they also asked him about this matter of eating food offered to idols. And if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we'll look at this under this title, A Matter of Conscience. The next three chapters deal with this, chapters 8, 9 and 10. But we focus particularly today on chapter 8 and these 13 verses. Let's read them, then we'll comment on them briefly as our time is going. It's page 1149. Hope to have a Bible in front of you. Now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrifice to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. There is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come, and from whom we, for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come, and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. 
We're no worse if we don't eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. May God help us to understand this passage. Now, this issue of eating meat that has been offered to idols is still a live issue in many parts of the world today. One of our missionaries, Derek Newton, spent several years writing his PhD based on these passages and applying them to the missionary situation he lived in with his family in Indonesia. And God willing, Derek should be here next Sunday evening to be interviewed in our Living in Corinth series. However, this has not been a live issue in the West for over a thousand years. So, you may say, what relevance does meat offered to idols have to us today? None at all. So let's go home early. However, I believe that though this specific issue is not of relevance, the way Paul deals with it is of utmost importance. There are many ethical and moral issues which the Bible and Jesus do not directly address, which are not expressly forbidden or are not clearly morally wrong. And on such issues, Christians across cultures, even within cultures, and even worse, within churches, disagree on what's right and what's wrong. And sometimes they fall out. So how do you deal with these differences? And in these verses we see quite simply, there are two ways to deal with issues on which Christians disagree. These kind of issues. The first of these was the dominant view in Corinth and was the view of the people who wrote to Paul appealing for him to support their position. You can describe it as the way of knowledge in verses 1 to 8. How do you resolve an ethical issue upon which Christians disagree? The answer said many in the church in Corinth is easy. It's all a matter of what you know. The opening verse of chapter 8 is another of these slogans that we've seen in Corinth. A popular slogan. They said, we all possess knowledge. Knowledge along with wisdom was one of the buzzwords in Corinth. Corinth was a Greek city, prided itself on learning and philosophy. And Christians had taken these words, wisdom and knowledge, and given them a kind of Christian spin. They said, every follower of Jesus has been given God's Holy Spirit. And so all of us possess wisdom and knowledge. God's wisdom and knowledge of the truth about everything. So, in relation to this issue of eating food offered to idols, what did Christians know that would help them to resolve the issue? To eat or not to eat, that is the question. We found the answer in verses 4 to 6. Look again. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, 
What do we know? We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. There is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords, inverted commas, round both, yet for us there is but one God the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we all live. Last Monday, you may have done it yourself, there was a, an old film on television, Clash of the Titans. Our family likes this film. and We've watched it several times. It's one of these films about Greek mythology and he starts off with this picture of um, Sir John Gilgood and all his pals impersonating gods up in heaven and looking down into Greece and seeing all these people with these statues that represent them. And the gods are worshipped by human beings and by statues or idols that represent what they think they look like. And although that's something of a caricature, it was the kind of belief system that the people of Corinth and of the ancient world held. But the Christian says, Paul, you know differently. You know that those statues that you people bow down to, they don't represent any reality. When you bow to the statue of Zeus, there's not some kind of Sir John Gilgood up there in heaven who looks like it, who's a reality. They're just statues. Idols are nothing. A God substitute. What Christians know, they know that an idol is nothing and that there is one God only. Now later on in chapter 10, Paul will warn us and the Christians in Corinth about using idols because they can be a conduit or front for demons who are real spiritual beings. However, his point here is that an idol represents nothing real. The so-called gods and lords are nothing more than that. So-called, they have no reality. The Christian knows there's only one God who is the Father and there is only one Lord who is the Lord Jesus Christ. This magnificent statement asserts the oneness of God and yet the different persons and roles of the Godhead, the Father and the Son. So, if you followed this far, Okay, eating meat offered to idols. If the idols are nothing, and if there's only one God, then the answer to eating food that has been offered to idols, it's obvious. Go ahead and eat, it can't do you any harm because they don't represent anything. Knowledge gives you the clear answer to this ethical dilemma. And that is what the dominant party in the church in Corinth was saying. We all possess knowledge, it's obvious. Just eat. However, while Paul agrees with what they know, that an idol is nothing, there is no God but one, he does not agree that knowledge solves the problem for two reasons. Look again at the passage. Knowledge does not resolve the issue because it puffs up the person who claims to know something. Look what he says in verse 1. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. He says, the person who relies on his or her knowledge alone shows that he doesn't really know everything or anything. For true knowledge leads to humility and an awareness of how little you actually know. In contrast, the know-it-all becomes inflated with pride. The man who thinks he knows something, verse 2, does not yet know as he ought to know. In fact, the most important thing of all is not that we know God and everything he does, but that we love God and that God knows us. Verse 3, the man, but the man who loves God is known by God. And leading on from that, 
if, love, if knowledge is the controlling principle, it causes harm to fellow Christians, in particular in relation to eating food offered to idols. It ignores those who do, know, do not know something. You see, these Christians in Corinth went around with our placard saying, we all possess knowledge. But they forgot that there were some in the congregation who didn't know as much as they knew. Look again at verse 7. But not everyone knows this about idols and God. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. I was trying to explain this. Some who had come from an idol-worshipping background and been converted to Christ still had weak consciences regarding eating food that had been offered to these idols. The word conscience here is not so much the idea of the moral referee that tells you what's right and wrong. It's more the idea of moral consciousness and emotional awareness, a feeling about something being right or wrong that is not actually reliable. Let me give you an example from my own experience which may help. Some of you know I worked for quite a few years in India. Supposing a man has grown up in a Hindu culture in which the cow is worshipped as a divine being and he becomes a Christian. Can you understand how difficult it might be for such a person to eat beef? an act which would be for us the equivalent of, or even worse, than cannibalism. Now you might try to say, look, there's nothing in it. I need to persuade you that the cow is not divine. And you might persuade the person intellectually, but emotionally and psychologically, you would do enormous damage to the person if you forced them to go through with eating beef when they had not come to a full understanding of what was really involved certainly at the early stages of Christian development. Now, there were those like this in Corinth, described as those whose conscience is weak, it is defiled. And other Christians, puffed up with what they said they knew, were trying to use their knowledge to persuade these fellow Christians, former idol worshippers, to eat food offered to idols. They were even saying, do it, it'll build up your faith. And Paul responds that what we eat or do not eat has no spiritual benefit or other. Verse 8, food does not bring us near to God. We know worse if we don't eat and know better if we do. So if eating or not eating is neither here nor there, if idols are nothing and there's only one God, surely the right thing to do is to encourage people, all Christians, just to go ahead and do it. To eat food offered to idols. Knowledge seems to provide the answer. However, and this is a lesson all of us need to learn. You can win the argument, you can even be right in your argument, yet lose or seriously damage the person you're arguing with. If you enforce and encourage them to practice what you preach and to practice what you practice. And in such situations, the way of knowledge is not the right way to resolve these issues. Instead, there is a better way which Paul goes on to advocate and in one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, we'll enlarge even more on later, God willing, when we come to it. And that is secondly, the way of love. Look again at verse 1 where Paul starts. He contrasts knowledge and love. 
Knowledge pursuit, love builds up. J.B. Phillips translates it or paraphrases it as follows. While knowledge may make a man look big, it is only love that can make him grow to his full stature. You see, knowledge focuses on self. Self-importance and pride. The focus of love, however, is on other people. And this is seen in verses 9 to 13 in how a Christian relates and acts towards those who are described as weaker brothers. That is, who is the weaker brother? The Christian who has a different view about meat offered to idols. The one who doesn't fully understand the implications that idols are nothing, there is only one God. The person whose conscience is weak. And instead of using the weapon of knowledge to try to persuade them that they are wrong and you are right, by argument, let alone by example, love for that person must be the guiding principle. So knowledge does not resolve the issue, but love does. How does it do it? In this way. Love resolves the issue as we are prepared to forfeit our own rights and position rather than endangering a fellow Christian. One of the features of the church in Corinth, like our society today, is that they were into rights. My rights. I'm free to do what I want to do. And they said, we're now free in Christ. And we're free from all these man-made restrictions. And they were right, they were. But Paul, and he'll argue this in greater length in chapter 9, urges them to be prepared to forfeit their own rights by exercising their freedom responsibly. Look at verses 9 to 10. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't you be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? I exercise my freedom responsibly by taking into account not just what is right for me, what I want to do and what pleases me, but how my actions affect other Christians, especially those who have a weak conscience in respect of things that I feel free to do, but which they do not feel free to do. So these Christians in Corinth who were prepared to exercise their freedom by joining in temple celebrations and parties, eating meat offered to idols, Paul says, think carefully what kind of damage you may be doing to weaker Christians. You may become a stumbling block to the weak. The word is stumbling block. There is the word used of a trap. You know the one, that's the, the little twig that a bird breaks and then it gets catch, caught in a snare? You might ensnare someone by your example. So the person with a weak conscience about eating food offered to idols, may see you in the temple and think, oh well, I can do that. They may be emboldened, he says, to join in with disastrous results. For effect, verse 10, if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't you be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? Rather than building him up in the faith, the meaning of the word emboldened, it has the opposite effect of destroying his faith. And even him, because what happens then, this weaker brother, he is drawn back into idol worship, drawn back into his old way of life, ensnared. And now this is a very serious issue, because knowledge now is a dangerous weapon. Verse 11, So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. 
a serious matter. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. You see, knowledge focuses on me and what I want to do rather than on a fellow Christian what is best for his or her welfare. I fail to recognize something significant that that person is a brother or sister of mine for whom Christ died. I am guilty of sinning against a fellow Christian. In contrast to Christ who laid down his rights, as we've thought about at this table, so that we might live, who laid down his life to save this person, I am asserting my rights which may destroy this person. In fact, commentators are divided whether the word destroy there means eternally lost or their faith is simply damaged. Either way, it is a serious business. And beyond that, he says, when you sin against a fellow Christian, you sin against Christ himself. As Paul himself learned when he persecuted the first Christians. And on the road to Damascus, the voice said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Who is he persecuting? The followers of Jesus. When we damage brothers and sisters in Christ, we sin against Christ. And so he says... It is better to avoid any such action rather than involving risk to a fellow Christian. Verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. It's not worth, as one writer says, eating a few slices of meat if you're going to damage the spiritual health of a brother or sister. Now, we're nearly through. Now comes the application bit, because you're all sitting there saying, meat offered to idols. Clear principles, but what about the application? The principles here are very clear. Love, not knowledge, must be the guiding factor in determining our actions in regard to fellow Christians. What is not so clear is the people and practices that are referred to here. Particularly, we don't have any situation comparable to eating meat offered to idols. Let me say briefly what it doesn't apply to and then suggest what it may apply to. First of all, it does not apply to things that are clearly forbidden in Scripture, not practices which are clearly wrong. For example, in the previous chapters we've seen that Paul says quite clearly that sex outside marriage is wrong. This is not just something that Christians might agree or disagree on. No, these are issues that are not so clear. Secondly, it is talking about weaker brothers and sisters whose faith may be seriously impacted by our actions. It is not talking about stronger brothers and sisters. If that were not the case, then every Christian in every church could hold to ransom the rest of the church on secondary issues. For example, you may think, Women ought not to wear trousers. Let's just take an example like that. Especially in church. They ought to wear skirts. And someone else may say, yes, I think we should enforce that in our church. And I don't think they should cut their hair either. And someone else says, yeah, and they shouldn't wear jewellery or makeup either. Now, you imagine in a church like this, what would happen? Well, you just imagine it. (laughs) Do you understand the point I'm making? These are not clear-cut issues that are going to affect any... We agree to disagree in love, and if you need to think about that, read Romans 14 in the sermon that I preached on it 18 months ago, and John Percival preached on it about six months ago. 
No, the issue addressed here is a much more serious one that endangers a weaker Christian and threatens to draw him back into the old way of life. So, what kind of issues apply? I'm going to suggest them and then I'll comment before you all leap out the chair and say, no, 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 that's wrong, all right? Alcohol. Sunday observance. Those in the 25 clubs and pubs. The kind of music you listen to. The dress you wear. Whether you share a room with somebody of the opposite sex when you go on holiday. Now, as soon as I say these, you're going to give your verdict on them and say, ah, that one's in, that one's out, and those two are in, and well. The question I want to ask you is, on what basis did you decide whether they were in or out? Most of us already made our judgment on the basis of knowledge. This is what I know, what the Bible says. How many of us make our decision on the basis of love? Or do we say, well, it's, I'm free as far as the Bible goes to do this, and I'm going to do it anyway. What do we say? Hang on a minute. If I do this, will it have impact on other weaker Christians? Now, let me take one of the issues. You can work the rest through for yourself in your discussions afterwards. And you can also add a lot of other ones to them as well. Okay, let's just take the issue about drinking alcohol. Should a Christian drink? Knowledge of what God has revealed in the Bible indicates that drinking alcohol is not forbidden. In fact, John quoted Psalm 104 this morning and said that wine is one of the gifts of God that gladdens the heart. Now, we can argue about the degree of how much percent alcohol there was and everything else. But if this is true, then the Bible clearly also says you should not get drunk with alcohol. So, you could say, providing, on the basis of knowledge, providing I do not get drunk, that settles the issue for me and for every Christian. Or does it? Supposing a person becomes a Christian from a background in which his or her life has been ravaged by alcohol abuse, either his or her own or that of a parent or spouse. To such a person, any form of alcoholic drink is anathema to be avoided at all costs. They may even be persuaded that the Bible cannot possibly view alcohol as anything but in a negative light. And I've even read arguments that say, every time you read wine in the Bible, it therefore must mean non-fermented grape juice. So what is my response to that person? I could do an extensive Bible study with them to prove that they are wrong about what they believe the Bible says about alcohol. I could even offer them a drink and take them to a pub to prove that alcohol in moderation is no problem at all. But that would be totally irresponsible for it may well lead them back to the life and associations from which they have been delivered. In fact, that's why we only use non-alcoholic wine in our communion services. Because we don't want to cause any offence or even danger to those for whom even a small drink like that could be disastrous. Knowledge is not the way to resolve the issue. Love is. And if that means me forfeiting my right to drink, and certainly to do it in front of other people. I speak theoretically because I can't stand the taste of alcohol at all, so it's all right for me to talk, but for some of you, maybe a problem. Then whatever it is, I should be prepared to forfeit my freedom 
rather than risk endangering a fellow Christian's spiritual welfare. That is the principle. You need to work it out in practice. Knowledge alone is not enough. Love must be the determining factor. Let's pray together.